Don't miss the Can-Am Holiday Volleyball Showcase, North America's premier men's volleyball event. Experience and enjoy world-class athletes, coaches, and competition in Toronto this holiday season, December 28th to 31st at the Toronto Pan-Am Sports Centre. Get your tickets while they last at www.cahvs.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Very excited for this week's guest. So he'll be bringing the squad to the Can-Am Holiday Showcase, which is going to be in Toronto from December 28th to 31st, which features some of the best NCAA and youth sports teams. Uh, so this coach has been part of seven national championships in a row where he was part of Ohio State, uh, Penn State on the women's side, and also a coach at Springfield College and won some Division Three national championships. So please welcome to the show Kevin Birch from The Ohio State. Welcome. Thanks for doing this, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's always fun to join. Perfect. So let's let's get our listeners and myself up to speed here. So with U Sports, a lot of Canadian teams, well, all of them, I should say, we start in the fall and the competition season starts around October where you guys are considered a spring sport. So when do the athletes arrive and when do you guys actually start training? So we actually start training when they get here for, for classes in uh, the end of August, early September. Um, we're, we're actually given... Uh, four dates of competition for the off season. It doesn't count towards our official record, but um, we can, you know, have we can have some uh, some competition dates and some tournaments, which we typically have. We're actually using the three dates up in Toronto as three of those four dates. So we've only had one to this point, which is less than normal. But, um, but yeah, typically we're still training throughout the fall. We have about six to seven weeks where we can practice every day. And how many guys would you guys take? Because with the number of uh, NCAA men's programs. I'm sure there's there's a lots of players available, right? Because can you can you answer that actually? How many programs have men's volleyball in the states right now? Well, it's actually it's growing at a pretty pretty exponential rate right now. Um, more in the smaller schools, D two, Division two, II, Division three, um, because it's, they're using it as a way to drive some enrollment in those universities. Um, and we're trying to expand it to Division one level, uh, but right now we have uh, I believe we have well, well over fifty uh, programs. Um, between Division One and Division Two, I don't know the exact number offhand, but I know it's growing pretty quickly, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's quite a bit higher than that. Nice. So, with so many good high school and club athletes looking to play post secondary, uh, how many athletes do you carry? Like, how many athletes are in a in a practice gym on a normal practice day for you guys? Um, we're typically at eighteen to twenty-two. Um, right now, we're at uh, we're at twenty-one. Um, and next year, we'll be we'll be at uh, twenty. And uh, uh, probably the year after that will be around 22. So it just kind of varies year to year. But and I'd, I'd say that's pretty common. Most are, are uh, between you know 20 and 23, depending on the program, depending on their situation. So you mentioned you're only allowed a certain amount of competition dates before the season starts. So is this kind of important with your preseason? Are you looking to combine lineups? Are you looking to kind of just play your ones and get going? Like, what are you trying to get out of the, the Can-Am Holiday Showcase? Yeah, it's, that was a great question. And we're um, we're going to be taking uh, all uh, 21 of our guys up to uh, Toronto. So it's you know, and because it is you know three of our because it will be three of our last you know four caught dates competition for the off season, it will be a good evaluation tool for us. I have to you know still talk with our staff about how what exactly we're we're looking to evaluate, what we want to see. But yeah, I think there's a good potential that you'll see different lineups. Um, and just try to, you know, try to see different combinations, uh, you know, to prepare us for, for that following week with our first match, official match being on January 4th. Nice. So you've been to Canada before. You were part of Ohio State when they played some exhibition games with uh, McMaster. 
Would, is there a fair comparison? Is Canada pretty close to the NCAA in volleyball, actually like very competitive, or how would you rank it compared to like a regular season opponent? No doubt. Yeah, no, it's, it's it, you know, I, we're going to go up there because we're going to get tested. You know, we, we my mindset is we're, we're going to Canada and we're, we're going to get exposed with, with our weaknesses and, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get tested for sure. And, you know, I think that's a big reason why we're doing this. Um, th- there's no doubt that they're hurt. They're on, our, on par with us and if not better than us in, in certain years, uh, you know, I think, you know, that the top five, six teams are, are pretty dang good and pretty competitive. And from, from what I've seen in the past, you know, I could be a little bit off on that in terms of the depth of the, of, uh, you know, the, the amount of programs that are, you know, are competitive, but I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's certainly a very, very good level of volleyball. That's for sure. Now, is there any differences that stand out in your mind, just style of play or anything that our fans can look forward to when they actually go watch? Like, um, is the ball going to have any influence? Because I understand you guys use the Molten, right? And we'll probably be using the Mikasa because I think that's what U Sports is using. I haven't talked to the organizers, but I would guess that's the ball. Yeah, I think they're using the uh, the, the new version of the Mikasa that they're using internationally. Um, I think the uh, I think the more the most of the Canadian teams are using the older Mikasa, but yeah, we use the Molten. Yeah, I think that does make a difference, mainly because you know in the states you see a lot more jump spin with the Molten. Um, I'm not sure you can do that with the Mikasa and, and, you know, keep the airs, you know, at a point where you can still win a match. Um, so I think you're going to see, you know, you typically see more float serving, a little more tactical serving as opposed to just pure rip it and grip it, you know, grip it, rip it, kept serving. And like you see in the States, um, like we've actually done in the past, um, and a perfect example is when we went to make master those two years and, you know, we missed almost 10 serves a set you know, trying to jump spin like we normally do with the Molten. And, it, you know, I think part of it's mental, but I think there is a, an aspect of it with the ball. There's, it's a big enough of a difference that I think it does um, cause you to adjust and, you know, it, it makes it tougher. But, I, you know, either way, I think that's tactically, you know, you're, I don't think it changes who's going to win the match. You know, I think you, you are what you are regardless of the volleyball. Um, and I, I think, you know, to answer your question, I, I think, Ben at Trinity Western is doing some pretty cool things from a, from a systematic standpoint. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of cool things to see, um, you know, that I'm looking forward to see from a, from a training standpoint that a lot of teams are doing up, up uh, in Canada and um, looking forward to seeing how we can adjust to it and, and learn and, and grow from it. Um, but I think that, yeah, the ball is the biggest difference and the, and the, the tactical serving that you see uh, will be a definitely adjustment for, for our guys and, and uh, for, the, for the teams from the States. Yeah, so you mentioned jump serving, and that is one thing that, is, as Canadians, we do see that it stands out, that a lot of spin servers, and uh, the errors are, are here and there, but how do you guys manage that as a team? Is there ever a point where you realize you are missing too much, or is it just so much emphasis on getting the other team out of system that you're willing to kind of risk it? Sure, no, I, I think it's, uh, I think like a lot of other areas of the game, it's a lot about balance. Um, I think if you get too extreme on either end, you're going to get in trouble, Um you know, if you're if you're too tentative, then you're going to get in trouble. If you're too aggressive, you're going to get in trouble. So it's you know you got to serve it tough and put a team out of system, but you also can't miss. So it's you know we're, we're our you know point of emphasis is just to always serve with a purpose. We don't want to ever serve a ball to serve it in the court. We don't want to be that. We we don't want that to be our purpose. We only we want our purpose to be you know to to get somebody out of system, to make somebody uncomfortable, to get a passer to move, to serve a seam, to serve a short deep, to do you know all these different types of things. You can still make an opponent pretty uncomfortable by lowering the, the, you know, the difficulty. So, you know, to again to answer your question, I think it's, um, 
to us, it's about, you know, how can we balance and manage that risk and reward factor? Um, you know, and I think with some guys, that means, you know, probably a lot more float serving than we've done in the past. Uh, but I also think, you know, we, we, again, don't want to be to the point where we're just lobbing balls over the net just to get it over and give ourselves a chance. That's not, that's not what we're about. So fans of Ohio State or, or even Canadian fans will be aware, you guys won two national championships in a row. But if you trace it back, uh, Penn State seemed to be the first East Coast team to win in 94. Um, but with you guys winning and Lewis winning, technically the East has claimed four out of the last six national championships. Is there any reason for this shift where either it's just more competitive or maybe the depth in California isn't there what it used to be? Like, what would you attribute to kind of men's volleyball being a whole countrywide versus just the state of California? Well, I think for years you saw Southern California was just a, the, the volleyball hotbed because of, you know, the culture of beach volleyball and um, just the culture of, you know, guys, you know, being brought up playing the game for a long time. I think it's a repetition sport. And I think, you know, in those cultures where volleyball is popular and, you know, at an early age for boys, I think that's where you're traditionally you saw that really only in Southern California. So that, that then translated to UCLA and the Southern California schools and, the West Coast school is really dominating for long periods of time. And obviously that's a probably an oversimplification. I don't want to take credit away from um, Al Skates or any of the other coaches that, you know, are, are legends and did amazing things. But I think the, the, the reason why you're seeing, you know, some of the Midwest and uh, East Coast schools having some success as far as national championships are concerned is because you're seeing uh, a growth of the game in, you know, in those areas. You know, Chicago wasn't always a big, boys volleyball area and now it is you know you're seeing that even in ohio it's getting it's getting uh, quite a bigger pennsylvania maryland's we're seeing guys come out of baltimore i mean this florida is getting huge arizona i mean there's it's it's growing in places and staying you know the, the, the talent is is continually coming out of there which it didn't, didn't used to 10 years ago um and i think that's why you're, you're going to continue to see a little bit more um you know a, a little bit more success from from teams outside of California, you know, teams outside of, of the West Coast, I think you're just going to continue to see a lot more parity. Yeah, the growth on the East Coast is definitely exciting. You mentioned the Chicago area. Like, a lot of Canadian teams will go down for our family day, which I think is your President's Day and playing tournaments. So it's exciting to see that growth. Um, looking up and down your roster, you guys have been able to recruit local, but you've also been able to grab some California athletes and some international players. So um, what's your involvement on the recruiting side, and how are you guys attracting, like, Nick Sturgeon was a great player in France. How did you get him to come over and have such a big impact? Like, what, what's Ohio State doing right to attract all these athletes? Well, I think a lot of it's just the the brand that is Ohio State and, you know, what our athletic department and administrators have done um, to allow us to go after those those types of athletes all over the country and all over the world. You know, if you don't have the resources to go and watch those kids, if you don't have the um, the, the support to, to attract them when they do come here to visit, then it makes it really difficult to get kids all over the country. But, you know, again, our, our brand and our resources and administration allow us to do that. You know, I think, um, you know, I was an assistant before and, you know, really tried to make the point to get the best kids possible because I felt like our, our brand allowed that. Um, and I think now our, our assistants are doing an unbelievable job of, of continuing that. Um, but I think a lot of it is just trying to, again, try, trying to come up with a list of the best kids regardless of where they're at, you know, obviously trying to, to dominate the area that, you know, is close to us and keep those kids close to home. Um, as far as the European kids are concerned, Zerzan we got a little lucky on. He, uh, his sister played for the women's team here, and, you know, he was really considering 
us and or, or going you know straight pro so we got pretty lucky with him and um you know he, he a lot of that you know then he led to another uh, kid from france that came out and decided to play for us uh, over some others because of his connection with nick so i think you know like i said some of it's luck but a lot of it is just the, the, the brand and the, the resources that we're, we're given and the people that we have around us that allow us to go and do that. Yeah, I want to build on the brand thing just to sidetrack off volleyball. Can you just touch as somebody who's who's living it on the Michigan rivalry? Because uh, ESPN's done some great job, obviously, when Urban Meyer was the football coach talking about the rivalry and how you won't even say the other school's name and just crossing out M's on campus. Like, I know Michigan doesn't have a volleyball program, so maybe it's not as direct to you, but... Um, what's it like being part of such a big sport program and having a rivalry like that? That's fun. You know, I think it, you know, we all want to be part of something unique and pretty special. And I think our university and athletic department has done a, a pretty good job of recognizing how special that is in the, in the rivalry and, um, you know, getting behind student led ideas like cross out the M's and, um, coach led ideas, like just getting behind the whole rivalry itself. I think we get more behind it than Michigan does. And I think it's a big reason why we were able to, to have as much success, but also we're, we're enjoying it more. You know, obviously winning has a part of that, but, um, you know, I, I think it's great that, you know, the people within our university get behind it so much um, and recognize how special it really is. It's, it's, it's just fun to be part of. It's fun to watch it. It's, um, you know, my wife is a Penn Stater and she comes, she goes, you know, as much as I don't like, you know, Michigan, it's Ohio State and I'm jealous of that rivalry. It's really cool to see things like cross out the ends and, you know, that's just a special part of a, of a culture that not, all, not a lot of other universities have. And I think it's, um, again, it's just kind of unique and fun to be a part of. Now, is there anything in the men's volleyball schedule that is, is similar that would be a rivalry that you guys kind of circle on the calendar? Uh, you know, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think Penn State's always fun just because they're, you know, the, the Penn State and us are the two only Big Ten men's volleyball programs. Uh, I think anytime we get Lewis and Loyola, the Chicago schools in in our gym, Ball State, I think it, it's a it's a special rivalry. But I don't think there's anything um, that compares to the Ohio State Michigan. In fairness to them and and what football has developed, it, that's that's pretty unique and pretty special. I'm not sure anybody can compare to that. So looking at your your coaching portfolio, it's really impressive to be a part of seven national championships. Is there anything those teams had in common that? kind of climbing the ladder and you were a part of a D3 program. You were part of a women's program. You were with Ohio state. Like, is there anything that you could say, you know, a national championship team has these characteristics? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny you ask that. Cause that's, you know, I, I look at that constantly because the reality is I was really lucky to be part of those seven teams and I want to make sure I take full advantage of those opportunities. And a big part of that is recognizing what those common denominators were across those seven teams. And to, you know, to your point, yes, there were a lot of common factors like, you know, the, the personality of a setter, you know, which is something that a lot of people might not think about was really common. There's always a, a very confident, um, very, uh, very type A, I guess, or alpha setter on every one of those teams. Um, you know, and the other part of that, too, though, is, you know, the, the, the things that weren't always common across the board. Like, you know, I think a lot of a lot of teams, a lot of coaches talk about having to have a good location center all the time. Well, there wasn't a really good location center on a lot of those teams that won it. Um, and a lot of, obviously there's, there are factors that go into that, right? Like if you have a, a good location center, you got to have, you know, you might not need as, as good of pins around you and vice versa. Um, that's certainly a part of it. But I think there's like you, you alluded to personality on the court is huge. Um, and that's not something I probably would have thought of or valued as much as I do now. Um, 
you know, watching head coaches and seeing what is sustainable and what is consistent and what wins the most over time, not just in one match or one set. You know, I think consistency is a big thing and being level-headed and um, predictable is really important. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I think a lot of a lot of coaches in the past have asked me, like, what's the one thing that you would you would uh, say is the most important or what, what's, you know, what's this one number, one stat that you look at that was most relevant to those seven years. And, you know, the reality is there are no shortcuts. You know, there, were, there aren't any, and not that they're asking for that, but it's just, there, there are, there wasn't one easy thing. You know, it's, it's all seven of those years, those players and coaches worked really, really hard, especially the players. Um, and, and they, they earned it. They, those players earned every single bit of that success. And it was really fun to kind of, just observe that and observe, like you said, what mattered across all seven of those years. It was fun, fun experience. Now, can you give us some insight what you mean by alpha setter? Because I think when you think of our sport, that might be something that's unique, that they're, they're controlling it, but they're not necessarily scoring points, right? They're influencing in a big way. So what are some like examples you could give our coaches that stand out? To, when, when you say alpha setter, what does that actually look like? Well, so I mean, I, I think it's a setter that looks confident no- so I think there's a lot of setters that I've looked at, worked with in the past that, you know, if they make a mistake or if the team gets, or a guy gets blocked or something bad happens, they put their head down, which as an outside hitter, that might not matter, but as a setter, that matters. And it, and it affects people, whether it's a subconscious reaction or a conscious reaction, over time that matters. And in those seven years, that, that, that rarely happens. Um, it, you, you need a confident leader that's, that's good in, in adverse situations and that is looking guys in the eye and telling them, hey, we're going we're to get this next point. And instead of, you know, focusing on the previous play, the previous problem, um, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's hard to describe, I think, but overall I think it's, it's just that, that confidence when it's not easy um, was a pretty common, common trait. Now, can you share anything about uh, Russ Rose in your time at Penn State? Obviously, he, he's a coaching legend. Is there any, either just a unique story or something you admire about the way he runs his squads? Because they've been competitive for as long as anyone can really remember, right? Yeah, no, it's, it, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people feel like they work hard in any profession, right? I think if you ask, if you ask anybody in an interview, for example, if they're, if they're hard workers and 99% of the time they're going to say yes, um, and that's what I, you know, I would have said the same thing before I got there. And when I got there and worked for us, I realized what true hard work really was. Um, and I, you know, and he is, you know, somebody that's going to lead the way by example, and he's going to work his butt off, and he's going to have high expectations. He's not going to yell at you, but he's going to be honest with you. Um, and I think, you know, he was as honest as anybody I've ever worked with. And I, you know, at times it was really tough to hear. And I think that for that was a that was the case for the girls as well. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it became something you crave and something you have so much value for because of, you know, the culture that it creates and the, the development that it allows, um, you know, just, you combine that level of honesty and that level of hard work and you do it on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's pretty impressive what you can do. And, you know, Russ, Russ was, you know, selfishly, he was amazing in my, you know, amazing influence for my career because, um, you know, I realized, you know, what, what the grind can do and how, how valuable it is, you know, for your players and athletes to, to accomplish things they never thought they could, um, just by applying consistent hard work and, and giving them honest feedback on a daily basis. Um, it was, it's pretty fun to be a part of. And like I said, I'm hoping that I can be half that, 
um, that Russ is. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could let us in behind the curtain a little bit. It, he get, has a lot of great sound bites and obviously a very tough coach, but you mentioned people know he cares and he's really involved and he's consistent with it. So how does he kind of build the trust or know the athletes know that he cares? Because like I said, the, the sound bites, sometimes he's just brutally honest with a lot of players, right? How does he manage that and really, really get through to them? Well, I think anytime that you're going to, as a coach, if you want to generally build trust, I think you have to, you have to show it in your action, regardless of how tough you are. So with his, with as honest as he is, he's always there for, for his student athletes and for his, for his coaches. Um, you know, a, a good example um, was, you know, I, I had to go to the airport uh, after, right after we won the championship because my, my grandfather passed away and he was the first person, he didn't even ask to, if he could take me to the airport. He just, you know, said, hey, jump in, jump in the car, we'll, we'll go to the airport. And was the first one to pick me up and um, he's doing the same thing for the girls and then some. Um, he's always there for him. He, he's always available to talk with them. And I think that's the one thing I took from him, um, you know, to your point of how he builds trust is, you know, I started by setting up weekly meetings, uh, meetings with our players every couple of weeks uh, because of, you know, of what Russ did. And I think the more conversation you have, the more human um, he becomes to those girls. Because when you're just, if you just take what he, what he says to him in, in front of the team, it can be pretty tough. It can be, um, it can be, it can be tough at times just in, in general. But I think when you start talking with them every other, you know, every couple of weeks and you have meetings and you can go to his office and have one-on-one meetings, you see over time how much he really does care and why he's being tough on, on, on you and, and why that, that honesty is so important for your development um, as opposed to other methods of coaching. And I think that's where, where that trust really comes and why those, why his players would do anything and coaches would do anything for him. Now you also got to work with another legendary coach and coach Hanson when you got to Ohio state. Is there anything that stands out that you kind of added to your own coaching book just by how much he did and you got to see firsthand or any lessons you could take away with your time with him? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Countless. Yeah. He's, you know, he's the guy that, I mean, all the coaches I worked with have done it the right way, but you know, Pete was the first one I worked for and, you know, Pete always, always, you know, everything from choosing the best guy, regardless of maybe a recruiting bias or, a, you know, any other bias for that matter. It was always the best player. It was always honest. It was always doing it the right way from not bringing a recruit on campus unless you had an offer for him. It was, you know, uh, you know, always being upfront and honest with the players, with the, with the recruits. I think honesty is one of those things that almost comes across cliche, but there are a lot of situations as a coach where it can be tough, you know, to be up, up front and be forthright with a kid and, um, you know, Pete was always that way and uh, always worked extremely hard and always was doing what was in the best interest of the student-athletes. And I think that's something I've obviously carried with me in every decision I make. Now, we've talked about some of your coaching influences. Obviously, you have your own resume and you're, you're doing an outstanding job. There's going to be a coaching symposium at the Can-Am Holiday Showcase. Have you thought about what you're going to speak about and maybe some questions that coaches can ask you? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's, you know, I always try to cater – uh, what I talk about to, to what, you know, the, the audience is, is looking for um, and try to kind of gear it as much as I can around the questions that they ask. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I think the, the, uh, you know, the impactful things that I've learned are, are you know, are all stem from difficult situations, you know, difficult experiences. When you have to make that choice that's, that's tough, those are often the ones that are the most impactful for the people that are around you. Um, so I tend to lot, talk a lot about those experiences and those examples um, just because, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, 
it's, it's really easy sometimes when you get in a difficult situation to, to tell yourself, you know, you, you don't have to do something or it's easier to just put it off or to, to not jump in with two feet to help somebody out. And I think, you know, when it is, I think it's really important to, to do exactly the opposite and then do whatever you can to help the people that are around you. And I think those experiences have shaped who I am. And those are often what I, you know, like I said, like what I talk about when I get in those symposiums. Nice. Yeah. Maybe a quick one. You could maybe give us a teaser of just looking at your resume. You seem to kind of go through a lot of different roles where you were a volunteer assistant, you were an assistant. Uh, looks like you were the director of operations and now you're a head coach at a major school. How did you kind of stay on path to know that this was going to be your profession and you were chasing that when there's kind of so few jobs to be at the level you're at, right? How did you know you were on pace for this and willing to kind of move and chase the dream a little bit? To be honest with you, I didn't know I was on pace for it. I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think you can really, you know, think about those things that, you know, you can't really control. You know, I can't control, um, you know, what, what, you know, job titles may or may not be in front of me, you know, especially as a volunteer, as a director of ops, I, I can just control about, you know, the, the, what I'm doing for the people around me. I, you know, I, I think when you're in a team sport and you're a leader, you, you have to lead in an unselfish way if you want the people to follow you. And when you can get people to be unselfish below you or, or not below you, but with you, I think it, uh, it, it can create pretty special results. Um, and I think that's what I've really tried to focus on is working hard for, for, you know, for the student athletes and for, you know, the, the coaching staff members that I've been around and trying to do what's best for everybody involved and follow the leadership that I've been a part of. And that hasn't stopped, uh, regardless of my title. And that's, and I, I, it does sound cliche, but it's the truth. You know, I, I want to control what I can. And I, you know, at the end of the day, I want to look back on a job that I do and feel like, you know, succeed or fail. I want to make sure I did everything I could and not feel like I left something out or could have done something differently. Um, and I think when you control that, the chips will fall where they may. And then you just do the best you can with what you have. Nice. Now, this one might be tough to answer just because you're going to be mixing lineups. And you said you're bringing basically the whole squad of 21 guys. But just from an outsider who's going to watch you guys play at the showcase, is there anything they should look for that's kind of like an Ohio State brand of volleyball? Like you guys are at your best when, I don't know, you're running the BIC really fast or when your middles are running. Is there anything tactically that our, our fans should be looking forward to what, what Ohio State's going to bring to the tournament? Well, I think, I think we're going to be at our best when we're, we're scoring points from the end line. And, you know, it's probably the obvious thing, but I think when we're efficient with our first touch, you know, we're, I think our strength is our serving and passing um, and, and a fast and system offense to the pins. And I think, uh, I think we're going to be that team that, you know, might surprise some people when they see us, we're going to be a little undersized and uh, we're not going to be the most physically imposing team, but we're going to be efficient. Or at least I hope we're going to be efficient. And uh, if we are, um, I think we can surprise some people and, um, you know, I think our defense might surprise some people. I think we can be, we have the potential to be, um, you know, to wear some teams down, but, uh, you know, at the same time, we got a lot to work on where it's early on and, uh, there's been a lot of change on our ends from a volleyball standpoint. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out and see how we're, uh, how we're exposed in, in Toronto. Perfect. So you mentioned your team's kind of transitioning different phases and you're going to work things out. Uh, is there anyone who's still on the squad from those national championship teams or is there anything that the culture's kind of passed down to every team that you can rely on, you know, the first and second years will be up to speed because of the kind of internal leadership you guys have? Yeah, I mean, uh, Jake Haynes will, will be on the roster. Um, he, he's from uh, he's from 2017 national title. He's a, he's a red shirt, so he didn't play that year. 
we don't have any starters from those teams that are still around. Um, but, uh, you know, culturally, I think this program has traditionally always been about, you know, being self-motivated. Uh, you know, if you have the opportunity here at Ohio State to do some great things, we are going to, you know, structure um, our training and our you know, weight training to, to make you as successful as we can. But there are things that you need to do on your own uh, outside of, you know, our structured practice times that are going to make the difference between you becoming good or great. And, you know, when, obviously to win national championships, you got you to gotta have a lot of guys that are, are bought into doing extra things on their own that are, you know, that, you know, are, are self-motivated, you know, putting that extra half an hour, passing reps, serving reps, so on and so forth. And, you know, we had 8 a.m. practice this year and um, we have a, a second year libero that, you know, that was here every morning at 7 a.m. getting extra passing reps. Uh, we had a lot of the guys doing the same thing that are working their butts off. Um, and that, to me, as a first-year coach, is super exciting because, in the end, that's going to be their choice. It's their choice to wake up early every morning to to do those extra things. It's, um, you know, it's especially with the new coach, they don't have the results attached to it necessarily. It's hard to believe uh, that that's really going to work as much as it, you know, has for others in the past. So um, it's exciting to see that pass down and um, see that that you know culture tradition um, stay in our program. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that about your, your squad there. It looks like it's going to be an exciting event. Uh, I, I would imagine most people are in the same boat where we're going to see the ones play a lot. And I think we're going to see some combinations, but it sounds like a great event and really appreciate you guys being available for this event. Cause the see a caliber team in Toronto, like this is great to see against some, some youth sports competition. So everyone should be looking forward to that. So that's December 28th to 31st in Toronto. That's the Can-Am holiday showcase tickets are available. So you can see Ohio State and a bunch of other NCAA teams bring it to some Canadian teams. So thank you, Kevin, for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate it and looking forward to watching your team play and, and seeing you at the symposium. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me and uh, looking forward to seeing you up in Toronto.